Welcome to the re-release project of the Keeping Things Alive podcast, which is the republication of episodes that were originally recorded and published between 2016 and 2020 out of Western New York. My name is Laura Evans. I'm a former environmental lawyer, planner, and nonprofit staffer. I also wrote a book called Silent Seasons, Chasing Sustainability Through the Law. The Keeping Things Alive podcast is here to explore the opportunities and challenges as we all live together on this beautiful, living, and interconnected planet Earth. Hi everyone, this episode is exciting for me because it's my first episode and my first interview that I ever recorded for the Keeping Things Alive podcast. This episode is where I share my conversation with a good friend, Linda Schneekloth, and although I do plan on interviewing people who work within the environmental realm everywhere, I'm starting out this podcast by focusing on leaders from Buffalo, New York's 2015 Rise Up for Climate Justice campaign. This campaign was happening right around the time that I came back to Western New York, which is where I'm from, and this campaign just drew me into Buffalo because it was celebrating the Pope's encyclical and getting people excited and passionate about the Paris climate negotiations, which did result in an international agreement to curb the causes of climate change and deal with the effects of it as well. So Linda Schneekloth, she is one of the organizers of the Climate Justice Coalition of Western New York, and that's the group that emerged out of the 2015 Climate Justice Campaign, which is what you're going to hear me talk with her about a lot. She's also served as chair of the Sierra Club Niagara Group. She's currently the advocacy chair of the Western New York Environmental Alliance, and she was one of the founders of the Buffalo Niagara Riverkeeper. She's a professor emerita at the School of Architecture and Planning at University of Buffalo and continues her profession as a landscape architect. She's also a grandmother of nine, and most of them live in Buffalo. So Linda has worked within the realm of placemaking. She tries to understand how people come to love their places and are willing to take care of them. She says that, I am excited to join with so many others to expand our love of place to the whole planet Earth now at this critical time of climate change. The best way that I can describe Linda is that she is a connector. She reaches out to other people and other groups, finds common ground, ways that they can build coalitions and work towards a common goal. She never tries to bring other people into her way of thinking or her group. Rather, she wants to network with other groups and other people. And she's just been this amazing force of building strong environmental campaigns in Western New York. She has devoted her life to better the planet and Western New York in particular. I'm very fortunate to have met her in the fall of 2015. She continues to be a great friend and mentor and I'm very excited to share with you this interview with Linda Schneekloth. Hello, um, I'm here with my friend Linda Schneekloth, and we're here to talk about her um, experiences with environmental policy and the Sierra Club climate justice campaign. So, hi, Linda. Hi, how, how are you, Laura? <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> I'm really good. Um, I guess I wanted to start out by having you talk about um, like where you grew up 
and some of your earlier experiences um, in the outdoors and with nature. So where did you grow up? I grew up on the northwest branch of the Anacostia River uh, in Hyattsville, Maryland, outside of Washington, D.C. I was born in Baltimore because my dad was in the, um, worked in the shipyards in World War II. Um, but um, in 1945, we moved down to Maryland. And um, like I said, we, I grew up on the creek. I didn't know until later that it was the northwest branch of the Anacostia River. Um, I'm one of five, and my mom and dad and the five kids lived downstairs in this old farmhouse, and my aunt and uncle and their three kids lived upstairs in this old farmhouse. Um, and we lived that way for, for many years. This was uh, very rural when we first moved there, um, but obviously after the war, um, it became very um, populated and lots of housing was built and um, to the point where uh, the subway now system in Washington, D.C. stops a mile from my house <laughs> or where my oh, house okay. was. <laughs> yeah. So I, I sort of personally experienced that huge post-war um, suburbanization process that happened, but our house was um, still an old farmhouse kind of on a, a quarter acre land. Okay. So we spent a lot of time playing in the creek. Um, My brothers and sisters and cousins and I, it was like, it was our playground. There's no question about it. It was just wonderful. How did you get to Buffalo and Western New York? Um, Let me see. How did I get to Buffalo and Western New York? Is Well, um, I was teaching at Virginia Tech. Um, I got a degree in landscape architecture and started teaching at the university and the College of Architecture there. Um, And um, my partner, Bob Shibley, was in Washington, D.C., so we were six hours apart. Mm. And we started looking for jobs in the same city. And um, we, you know, sometimes he would be offered a job and sometimes I would be offered a job. And so Buffalo turned out to be magic because both of us were offered a job here. So we moved here in 1982. Rachel and Nathan, my two kids, moved with us. They were like 12 and 13 at that time. Mm -hmm. So um, that was quite a while ago, and we've lived in the same house since 1982. Yeah, I love your house. Thanks. Amazing. (laughs) Buffalo homes are just beautiful. Yeah, and you installed geothermal. Yeah. How did that work? Um, Well, it's been three years now that we put the geothermal system in, um, and it works great. It's wonderful. You know, what it does is it it brings in water um, at a like about 55 degrees, which is the ground temperature here. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so you eat it, you actually heat and cool both from that 55 degree um, through a compression process. The air gets compressed and that gets distributed th- through the house. So we have both air conditioning and heating. And it also heats the hot water because it takes the excess heat out um, and, and actually heats the water. Um, and so you use that as your water system. So it's all a part of the same, it's a part of the same system. It's very comfortable heat. It's not so dry. Uh, mm-hmm. The humidity is always higher because it doesn't heat heat. It doesn't. If you it sets the heat at seventy, it comes out at about seventy. We love our geothermal system, um, and yet I think about it in um, in an urban environment um, that doing it on an individual site doesn't make as much sense. Although I'm glad we did it, but anyway, okay. I think it should be in the streets. It's just it's a utility, and so if they you know put the geothermal system, the coils in the streets, then every house hook hole could hook up to it. I don't understand why that isn't being done or experimented with at some point. Okay. Um, because we know that home heating is like 38% of our greenhouse gas emissions and, you know, we're really kind of tied to natural gas or electricity. We don't we don't have a lot of options for home heating because we don't want to burn wood, obviously. Mm-hmm. 
so um, geothermal is a perfect way to to do that and but and so in both suburban areas or rural areas it's just it's so perfect yeah you know? but um in an urban area I, I keep thinking we should just put it in the streets i mean every other utility is in the streets why not geothermal so do you have like a utility bill or how well like it, it's run on electricity okay you know so okay. it's like so, so your electric bill's a little higher our but electric bill's higher but we don't have gas okay yeah. That makes the way sense. it works. And, you know, more and more companies are now doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that there's a couple companies in the city now who actually um, install geothermal so or in the region. So this okay. is great. It's not, it's, 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 no, it's no longer, uh, what should you say, um, um, uh, experimental technology. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely, you know, it, it's done and it's, it's pretty clear and it works really well. Cool. That's great. Thank you. Um, Okay, so my next uh, question I wanted to go to is I wanted you to describe um, an early, like, powerful nature experience that you had. So is there, like, I don't know, just some sort of moment where you got, where you knew that your, you know, path was going to go towards um, environmental protection, things like that? How did you, I guess that's two questions. So how did you get there? But also early on, like, you know, what happened? Well, like I said, we played at the creek all the time. Okay. Um, and so, you know, so my whole growing up experience, we were free-range kids, you know, none of this uh, hovering around and stuff because, there's, first of all, there are too many of us, I'm sure. <laughs> you can't keep track of all of them. Um, but it was like, you know, be back for dinner, and Mom had a big horn that she would blow, and no matter where we were, we could hear it and, you know, come running home. So I think just as a habit, um, playing outside, uh, and playing in the in the environment was really a, a part of my early experience. But I do have a moment that I remember. It must have been in third or fourth grade because um, I, I remember having read Green Mansions, the book, uh-huh. and um, I would run through the woods and pretend I was Rima, you know, <laughs> the wonderful, wonderful, you know, forest child, and just have what I would call like almost like a charged experience of feeling that there was no separation between me and all of the plants and the animals and the water that were mm-hmm. around me. And I think a lot, of, a lot of the work that I do is trying to recapture that incredible sense yeah. of being at one with the natural environment um, because it's so, it's so transcendent. You, you, you're not, you know, it's like you're aware of yourself, but it's not about yourself. It's just you feel all of this camaraderie camaraderie and being embraced by the earth um Mm -hmm. and so i think that that's a pretty powerful experience and i know it's not idiosyncratic many people have those kinds of experiences yeah Um, for sure yeah but when you do it just sort of like oh my gosh you know i don't feel isolated i don't feel alone i feel um just comfortable and and ecstatic (laughs) i guess Mm -hmm. there's a way to think about it yeah yeah i um i grew up in eden new york and I would go like behind my parents' house. There were like farm fields and vineyards and there was this pond and I have a memory of just like running through the field with my dogs being like, this is amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I don't even know how old I was or like when it was, but it was, I don't know, just this really great mm-hmm. moment. Maybe it happened a lot. I, I don't even really yeah, know. Yeah, you don't even know. <laughs> well, and I really think about how, where and how children live today and they don't have those serendipitous 
kinds of moments because they're not in the kinds of environments that give them those possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Richard Love's book, uh, which is called Last Child in the Woods, okay. um, has a great, great um, analysis and stories about the deprivation of kids, particularly suburban kids, actually, you right. know, who live in mowed lawns and Mm-hmm. you know, kind of surveillance kinds of environments. Travel by car. Travel by car. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, are we raising a whole generation of kids who aren't going to be able to have those kinds of experiences because the richness of the environment around them isn't isn't there? Yeah, you know? for sure. Yeah, I think maybe like the percentage of kids that get that is just keeps getting smaller, something right. like that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, so... When you were a landscape architect, um, were you because were you already involved in more like environmental advocacy or like how did you land on that path? Well, it's really it's really kind of funny. It's like um, uh, I started college, and like many people in my generation, I got married after two years, and so I left school and and had kids, and so it took me eight years to get my undergraduate degree. And it was in English, um, because that was the way I could get through, you know, the quickest, given, given, and I lived in three different places, went to four different colleges. No, it was like one of those crazy kinds of things. And I'd actually, I don't think I'd ever heard of landscape architecture Mm -hmm. at that time. Um, But, so the question was, well, what do you do with a degree in English? Uh, Well, I taught nursery school. That was what Mm -hmm. I was doing. And... um, it became pretty clear to me fairly early on that how rich the environment was made a total difference in how calm my day was and how much (laughs) fun the kids had. Um, And then I realized that there were people who actually studied this and did this both inside and outside, um, and that there was a direct correlation between the provision of complexity and the environment and how much the kids actually engage. So I go back to my own childhood and you think about there's nothing more complex than nature, mm-hmm. you know, And um, but when we put them in artificial environments, we simplify them somehow. And so it's more of a monoculture. But when you pay attention to it, and you add that level of complexity and interest and connectivity and you think about all of these things, then, oh, my God, the kids have a wonderful time and they don't beat on each other because they have other things to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, so that's how I discovered landscape architecture was what I found through um, through my work um, with with children. So um, in a funny way, um, it wasn't... because of the environment that I went to landscape architecture school in the first place, um, because what I did was I got a degree in landscape architecture and child development so that I could work in that field. And my first work that I did in landscape architecture was more human-related than it was um, landscape-related. But I also had the opportunity to take wonderful courses, and one of my favorites was called Seeds and Weeds. Um, Uh And then we would do a lot of trips out into nature and stuff. And so this was kind of the first time that I'd studied the environment. And I was like, yeah. I lived in the environment and I was attached to the environment, but it was the first time that I actually studied it and I, I fell in love again. Can you, what was Seeds and Weeds? Seeds and Weeds was um, plants, uh, trying to understand the ecology of plants. Oh, okay. Um, and to this day is that I think, oh my God, I think plants are the most incredible beings in the world, you know? Yeah. Looking at the tree out there and knowing that it's having conversations with all the other trees around it is pretty amazing, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, that's, 
out my window. That's my favorite tree. Wow. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, it's a huge silver maple. <laughs> right. And you can see it's the buds, you know, here just the middle of winter and it's got this really tight red buds just ready to burst whenever yeah. it can. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, it was really interesting. Like in the fall, um, you know, it had its leaves turning yellow and it was kind of going slowly. Then all of a sudden it just they were all gone. Like it just let them all go. And I swear like a day later it snowed. So it just like, I don't know. It's super ready for everything. Well, they, <laughs> well you know, if you think about it imaginally is that actually trees throw their leaves away. Mm-hmm. They don't fall. They, uh-huh. they just say, yeah. you know, I have no need for you anymore. <laughs> right. Away you go. <laughs> That's totally what happened. It was it was crazy. It was like one day they were there, and next day they were gone, and mm-hmm. then there was snow. And you know, if it had snowed with all those leaves, it would have broken more branches. So mm-hmm. I was I was pretty impressed. I <laughs> I like that tree a lot. So it's great. Hmm. Yeah. When Elizabeth told me about this apartment, she even said like. I think the first thing she said, yeah, there's an apartment above me. It has a great tree. <laughs> so I was like, okay. Yeah. Right? Oh, oh, gosh, yes, it does. It yeah. really does. So let's see. Um, so you're doing landscape architecture, and I guess I know that you were involved with the founding of the Buffalo River Keeper. So did that come before your involvement with Sierra Club or... I guess kind of give me the, the, history, the of, history of your involvement. Okay, well, let me just, just step back. When I was at Virginia Tech, I was running okay. uh, what was called the Human Environment Lab, and we did a lot of research on the relationship between people and places. Mm. Um, and that's the origin of, I think if I were going to describe... I were going to describe my academic work, I would think about it as being um, an investigation of the idea of placemaking, okay. which is how people create relationships to the places in which they live. And so that was the real focus of my work there. When we came to Buffalo is that I made a commitment that I said I really wanted to get more back into the natural world. That was you know, I was teaching that. I was the lone mm-hmm. landscape architect on an architecture and planning faculty. And so, you know, what, what could my contribution be? And I decided that that was what I was doing. And so we moved here. And it takes a while, you know, to get to know what's going on. And um, one of the things that was going on uh, was the fact that Lake Erie was practically dead. <laughs> and um, so here you are living on one of the Great Lakes on 20% of the world's fresh water. And, um, and the water is, is polluted and really, really horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, the International Joint Commission, which regulates both the Canadian-U.S. water boundaries um, and the Great Lakes, um, began this program that was called the Remedial Action Planning Program um, in order to identify the worst pollutants that were Mm -hmm. going into the lake. And Lake Erie, because it's so shallow, is actually one of the very, very worst. Um, And so they developed this process called the Remedial Action Planning Process where individual communities would um, do planning around what they called the 42 toxic hotspots. Okay. <laughs> we in Buffalo are so lucky. We have two of them right here, the <laughs> Buffalo River and the Niagara River, as um, two rivers that are contributing the worst pollution um, to the Great Lakes. Okay. And so that process was initiated in about 1985. So you can start to see the, you know, as, as I'm here, I'm starting to pay attention to what some of the issues are that are going on. Um, and um, they relied very much on local um, input and local science um, to, to generate these plans. 
Um, and these plans were supposed to say, well, what are the terrible things that are happening? And what and I love it, the science is they called beneficial use impairments. <laughs> um, you know, what's keeping us from using the waters, the Buffalo oh. River and the Niagara okay. River? And um, then um, they, you decided what needed to happen. And so with the Buffalo River, it was contaminated sediments was actually the worst the worst thing. Okay. Um, and the river was, was dead. I mean, I think they, they were just bloodworms, which are, you know, pretty s- symptomatic of the fact that there's no oxygen in the rivers mm-hmm. at all. And this had been used as an industrial sewer for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and once the plan was accepted, um, we formed the Friends of the Buffalo River um, because we, you know, wanted to kind of keep an eye on things. And um, I, I can't even describe the Buffalo River at this time. It was like it was like a sewer, you know. But you could see it with eyes that would say, "This could be such an amazing place." Because since it had been abandoned for twenty, twenty-five years, I was starting to naturalize again, and mm-hmm. you know, plants were growing back, and not very much was happening in the water. But um, <laughs> you could start to see that this, the re- the reclamation of all of that industrial landscape was really, really a potential. And so there were a group of about eight or nine of us um, who formed the Friends of the Buffalo River. How did you find each other? How did we find each other? Hmm. Well, I, I guess I'm trying to think. It's like there was one person who, Ken Sherman was his name, um, who I think was leading the charge, and he he kind of had relationships with different people. And then, mm-hmm. um, for example, I knew Margaret Wooster, um, Ken Sherman, who was at one time a minister and became very much an anti-war radical in the 1970s, 60s mm-hmm. and 70s. Um, he knew um, Brian Higgins, who's now our congressman, who mm-hmm. became a part of the Friends, and uh, a lawyer friend of his, and um, Barry Boyer, who was at the law school. You know, we just, we just kind of, over time, put these people together, partly from the people who worked on the RAP, the Remedial Action Plan, mm-hmm. and partly from other people who um, were interested in um, seeing this river regenerated and, and the lakes restored. So how did you get together and organize? Like, did you have an initial meeting and then just kept I think I think we started to have I think we started to have individual conversations and then yes mm-hmm. we had a couple of meetings. There used to be a place down right on the Buffalo River called the Harbor Inn, mm-hmm. which was where all the grain scoopers and people would hang out. And mm-hmm. so we started to kind of hang out there um, and okay. just kept talking about it and saying, okay, yeah, we really need we need an organization. So mm-hmm. we incorporated as the Friends of the Buffalo River, mm-hmm. um, and I think it was 1989. Um, and um, our goal was to be a voice for the river. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we were a volu- totally volunteer group, but we said we're going to just start speaking out on anything that happens yeah. about the river. Okay. And um, and we did. And we, I would say, in the you know the first five years, we got a couple grants that we were able to do some research about the green structure of the river. Mm-hmm. Um, we the it was also a committee at DEC the Department of Environmental Conservation okay. who were the legal they were called the Remedial Action Committee mm. um, who were supposed to be implementing it and you know one of our jobs was to watchdog them yeah because they you know they had a lot of things to do exactly <laughs> they have a lot more projects than just one. yeah right yeah. right yeah so we we were pretty much gadflies and yeah. where are they things. located DEC yeah um, DEC in Buffalo the region nine is down on Michigan Avenue okay um, so at least they're in the area they're not totally removed no 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 the they've river. got they've got offices okay. all over yeah. okay so and you know we made 
good relationships with them. And we also work with city council because this is their river. Mm-hmm. Um, we work very closely with the um, with the uh, cultural heritage people because all of the grain elevators were uh, along the Buffalo River. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, you know, you start to build partners and relationships, and pretty soon. Um, people start to know there is a Buffalo River. <laughs> right. Exactly. Maybe not where it was, but <laughs> because you couldn't get to it very easily, but they mm-hmm. began to know that it actually existed. Yeah, that's great. And then you transitioned from Buffalo River Keeper to Sierra Club, or was there ever an overlap? Um, there, there was an overlap, but the, okay. the, um, the Buffalo, first the Friends of the Buffalo River became um, in about 2000, the Friends of the Buffalo Niagara River, because we realized there was no group that had come forward uh. <laughs> to take care of the Niagara River, right? Okay. And then, and we hired our first uh, executive director, which was Julie Barrett O'Neill. Um, okay. And that really gave us a lot of push. I mean, it was a huge commitment because we had no income. We had to figure out how to pay it, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but we figured it out. And um, then in 2004, we became the Buffalo Niagara River. I mean, I mean the water keeper. Come back. Okay. We were the Buffalo Niagara River keeper, and then we came. That was our our new our okay. new voice. Um, Buffalo River Keeper. Yeah, right? it's actually called the Buffalo Niagara Buffalo Ni- Niagara River Keeper. Okay. Yeah. I see. Yeah, and I'm still on their board. I'm a board emeritus member and continue working with okay. the River Keepers because they're, you know, when I go back to the all volunteer board, they have like over 20 employees now. You know, That's it's one amazing. of the biggest River Keeper organizations, you know, in the world. Right. So it's a pretty significant, and um, and I just want to close that loop to say we actually dredged the Buffalo River um, in um, in 2013 and yeah, 14. Yeah, not that mm-hmm. long ago. Not that long ago. So we can start to see we started working on that process in mm-hmm. 1987 when the plan was passed, <laughs> and it took that long to raise that much money because it cost you know like 75 million dollars to to do that dredging. Right, because um, it was bringing up a lot of toxic materials, lot of to- right? So they had to be right. very and careful. And then disposal was disposal, probably Disposal, right. And yeah. then it, it, partly because it was the navigational channel, the Army Corps of Engineers was responsible for part of it. EPA was responsible for part of it. So it was it was kind of a bureaucratic nightmare in some ways. But yeah. um, but it happened, and that's so exciting <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to think that. Um, and, you know, in the next few years, as the river continues to flow and, you know, and, and clean itself, is that we're... We're anticipating that, you know, we really will might be able to swim one of these years in the <laughs> Buffalo River. Right. used to be if you fell in, which I've done before, um, that you had to get a tetanus shot. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So um, it's a, it is a real comeback story. It's a wonderful story. Yeah, that's so, amazing. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it was good right, that you right. did that. Yeah. So Sierra Club, I, um, I joined the Sierra Club um, Executive Committee um, probably, I don't even know the exact date, isn't that terrible? Um, probably around 2008. Okay. Um, maybe a little bit earlier. And um, because I was still very active in the Riverkeeper, I said, you know, I'm not going to be able, I'll, I'll be your voice on water issues, mm-hmm. you know, primarily because, as you know, that's another all-volunteer board, which mm-hmm. is the structure of the Sierra Club is that there really isn't paid staff at, at the local the local levels. Yeah. Um, and so that was at first is what I was what I was working on. But um, as Riverkeeper got more and more organized and more capacity, I figured they needed me less. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I decided that I would work, you know, more seriously with the, with the Sierra Club who had a broader um, view. It wasn't just water-related, but many, many different things they were working on, including climate change at that point, which is um, I began to realize we weren't going to actually be able to clean up the water 
if we didn't address climate change. How did you come to that conclusion, or where? Where is? Can you explain the link? Where there? Where did it happen? Um, because you know, the more and more it became became clearer about what climate change was really happening. And I have to say, I was probably a later person to come to this. I worked with the university on a lot of climate smart issues and stuff, but it wasn't really a big thing in my brain, mm -hmm. you know, at first, because I was so focused on the water. Right. Um, but when I started to understand the impacts that were going to be happening on the waters with the rising temperatures, invasive species, um, more severe storms, the lack of ice cover, you go down the list of things that would be impacting our water, it's like all of the work that we're doing right now might be for naught mm -hmm. um, if we can't start to deal with the climate change issues. And so mm -hmm. um, that was the beginning of kind of a refocus of um, the center of my energy, the center of my environmental work that happened at that point. Okay. Um, so I'm, yeah, really interested in, because um, Sierra Club, I mean, you and others on the Sierra Club really started the climate justice movement in Buffalo, which is what got me from, you know, Hamburg, where I moved back, and that's where I grew up, actually into the city. And I kept coming into the city, I don't know, couple of times a week almost for different climate justice events last year in 2015 that was coinciding with the Pope's visit. And that's kind of what connected me to you. And I got really impressed with the Sierra Club and that work. So I'm really excited to talk to you about, I don't know, like, yeah, the origin story of the climate justice movement, because it's much bigger than Sierra Club is now. And yeah, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Okay, it's like, you know, it's like I, I look back at this and I keep thinking about how uh, environmentalists and scientists have been talking about climate change for a really long time. You know, you go back to Hansen and you go back to the Rio de Janeiro, you go back to all of these events that have been saying, hey guys, wait a minute, you know, this is really serious, we're going to have to do something about it. And how incredibly ineffective, mm -hmm. you know, we've actually been. Um, and, you know, yeah, trying just to, to interrupt you. So Hansen was, he gave his speech to Congress. When was, was that? It was 88, I think. Yeah, yeah it, it was, was in the 19 James Hansen. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so this has been going on for decades. It's so. been going on decades. And mm -hmm. I even remember when I was, I was in college, say in the early 1960s in my meteorology class, um, having someone have being told that, you know, the temperature only had to go up two or three degrees, you know, centigrade. And we would be in the middle of this incredible thing and that, you know, the temperature was going up. And I'm thinking, you know, it just seems so foreign. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, in the 1960s, 2001 felt like it was a really far time <laughs> in the future, too. <laughs> right, for sure. Um, so, um, yeah, so people, we, were, we weren't effective. We, people weren't paying attention, and certainly not politicians. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, in the United States, it became politicized, mm -hmm. you know, so that even made it worse. True. Um, and so the, the, the question had to be asked as we would kept working on this stuff and you would give lectures or you would do something and it's like, oh yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> Say, no, 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 it's not interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is really scary, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Um, so we, we actually, in the Sierra Club board and probably I would say like, you know, in 2000, you know, the early 2000s, we would talk about, well, how could we be more effective? How could we get more policy changes? How could we do this work? We worked a lot with the Sierra Club Beyond Coal campaign right. um, on trying to close the coal plants, which, of course, now we hear they're going to reopen Dunkirk again, but right. we're still working so on So the Sierra Club Beyond Coal campaign, just to explain, 
a little bit. That's a national campaign, right? That's a national because campaign. Because when I, I lived in Austin, I, I would run into that. So yeah. it's a coordinated effort to get America off coal. Off coal, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Sierra Club is organized by chapters, which are like state groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we were a group within that chapter. There's 10 in in, um, in New York State, the oh, Atlantic okay. chapter, we're one of 10 groups, the Niagara group. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are these national campaigns, and Beyond Coal um, is one of those national campaigns. And they had, um, because of, I think they thought, they actually thought that it was going to be easy to get off coal in New York State, because yeah. they had a, you know, Governor Cuomo and stuff, and it was really hard, with a really a lot of work. Um, and we say we still haven't even accomplished it, because they're going to be reopening the Dunkirk coal plant. Mm-hmm. So, so that's pretty depressing, but we're working. Yeah. On, we're working on that one too. <laughs> okay, good. Um, but we're but all of this is happening within sort of rarefied conversations and groups. Mm-hmm. You know, policies, the public service commission, the P the PSC. Um, you know, so it's not it hasn't reached into the public at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were really very thrilled uh, when the Pope's encyclical came out. I know. Um, because I it was like, you know, well, Pope Francis is like a gift from heaven, no <laughs> doubt about it. I'm, I'm no Catholic, but I think that the man is a saint. You know, mm-hmm. it's just remarkable. Talk about someone being at the right place in the right time. Um, so that came out, and so that opened up, you know, a, a different conversation to us. Earlier that year, we had had... Um, you know, one of these strategic planning things that people do, yeah. um, groups and organizations do. And we decided that we needed to forge better relationships with the faith-based communities and with the unions were the two groups that we said, well, where are people? Well, people are in faith-based communities and they're in unions, you know, groups of people that we could deal with. So we decided that those were two groups we wanted to reach out to, but we hadn't quite figured out how to do it. And then the Pope, ta-da! Put <laughs> <you know, laughs> right. this encyclical, which... Um, which is so beautiful. I mean, it's like a poem. It's like a book of poetry. Um, right. If you read it, the vision and the and the language is. What know. message resonated with you the most from that? I think the way that he was able to talk about um, the the earth and human beings as one voice, um, the way that he you know talks about if we mistreat the earth and we mistreat people the same way, um, and if we. We ha- we need to care for both. Um, mm-hmm. So what he what he did was he healed that rift that the environmentalists you know sort of people say oh well you love trees and bees and birds more than you love people you know it was like that kind of an assumption which isn't really true but but what is true is that we love birds and bees as much as we love <laughs> human beings so mm-hmm. that gets to be problematic for people who live in a duality you know who decide you have to do one thing or the other thing so, mm-hmm. so that was very very encouraging. Um, and then we found out he was going to be coming to Buffalo, right? So mm-hmm. we so we sat down and we said, okay, what do we do? Let's just, what are we going to do um, now that the Pope is coming? And secondly, that the Paris peace talks were going to begin. Yeah. Um, because we knew that this was, they have one of these, you know, convenings of the party every year, but this one was really going to be different. And that mm-hmm. the one that they had in um, in Copenhagen had been so disappointing. Yeah. Um, and, but it seemed like, you know, the world community had awakened at some level and they were ready to do something different. So we said, okay, how are we going to alert our, our community that we love here in Niagara to the importance of this, all of these events happening right now? Mm-hmm. And so we decided to say, well, we're going to start what we call the climate justice campaign because the Pope was talking about justice mm-hmm. and love. 
Um, and um, we know from what's happening across the world that climate change is not reaching people equally, that some frontline communities are already having terrible, terrible circumstances. Um, and we also recognize that where we live, um, that we are handicapped because we really are not impacted very much about climate change here in the Great Lakes Niagara region so right. far. And, yeah. s- and so why would anybody care? Mm-hmm. So we had to figure out how to help people figure out how they might care. <laughs> yeah. So what did you come up with? Or Well, we decided that in the fall, um, we, by the way, we, we had, which we normally don't do, we had somebody left us a gift that we were able to use that money mm-hmm. to, to say, okay, we have enough money. We can, we can hire support when we need it, which is something that you normally don't have, which is really, really good. Um, we said in the fall of 2015, we are going to have a whole series of events um, and forge new relationships. We all made a commitment to each other that um, on the XCOM that we would forge these new relationships and bring people into this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did it. We started with this um, on the the day that the Pope was speaking in um, Washington. We had a large rally down in the center of the city at Niagara Square. You were there. Yeah, I yeah. know. I remember. Yeah. I met you. Yeah. I didn't yeah. meet you then. I met you. No, yeah. I didn't meet you then. It yeah. was at a different. Uh, documentary that was like the following week or right. something. Yeah. But I remember your granddaughter went up there and talked about polar bears. I mean, right. she was probably what seven? Yeah, right. <laughs> the time, right. Too and, bad. yeah. And you were up there, and that was a really that was a good day. It yeah, was, it was a, it was a great yeah. day. Over four hundred people came, and mm-hmm. um, and it was um. It was events. There was a lot of music. There was dance. There was, you know, it, it was kind of a um, what we what we called it was a, a, a gathering, you know, of mm-hmm. people. Um, and there were serious parts. We were able to ask, like the um, Darius Pritchin, who's the head of city council. We got them to pass a resolution saying that they supported climate justice. Um, and um, we had union people speak, and we had um, somebody from Tim Kennedy's senator's office. So we were able to to use this event mm-hmm. um, and the Pope's c- coming because that if we just had the event without the Pope's coming, I don't think we would have been as successful. You know how yeah. you have to really take advantage of things like that, right? Um, and a lot of people came. It was really it was just so exciting to see that that many mm-hmm. people would take time to come out and say, "Okay, this is." This is important. I'm here, yeah. and um, so so that was very 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 reinforcing for sure. Um, and then what we did was in our collaborations by bringing other people in, we asked different people to do different events, and I think we had like twenty some events in those it was, four months. It was a lot. <laughs> it yeah. was a lot. It was exhausting. <laughs> to say. Yeah. Um, but it was you know, and different kinds of events appeal to different kinds of people, right? You know, so we would have. Um, <clears throat> Events that were designated, you know, like with the films and stuff were education focused, mm-hmm. which I think was really very important. I also remember New York Renews. That was another one that was pretty good. Yeah, so can you explain New York Renews a little bit? Sure, I'd be happy to talk about New York Renews. Um, that this um, came out of the People's Climate March, that 400,000 people went to um, New York City, and I took my grandsons. I had a wonderful, wonderful time, although I... Getting too old to sleep on a bus, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, the, the coalition of people who actually, you know, organized and put New York Renews together after the event had to ask themselves, well, we can't just stop here. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the same way that we decided we can't just stop, you know, at the end of our 
our our engagement, you right. know, the climate justice campaign, the Rise Up for Climate Justice. Um, and so they brought their coalitions of labor unions, the Working Families Party, uh, social economic justice groups together, mm-hmm. um, environmental groups together, and started to say, well, what's the next step? What what do we do together? And, um, you know, we do live in a rather progressive state. I mean, we live in New York, and the the governor had come out with some um, really good guidelines, you know, 50% renew- renewables by 2050, you know, 100% by, I'm not by 2050, 100% by 2050, 50% by 2030, um, 45% cut in greenhouse gas emissions. And so, you know, we're, we're on the right track. The, the problem is that those are just executive orders mm-hmm. and um, not legally reinforceable. And um, we learned a little bit in 2015, the governor had said we want to be 30% by 2015, and we didn't make it. Okay. So the question was, well, how do we ensure that these targets are met? And so they decided on the pathway of legislation mm-hmm. and developed the legislation, the uh, New York Community Protection Act, um, mm-hmm. that would address, you know, uh, to, to make it legally mandated that we actually meet these targets. But they added two other targets to it. Mm-hmm. One is that because 40% of the communities in the state of New York are considered low-income communities. Um, They said that 40% of those funds for renewable energy and conservation should be spent in in low-income communities. And further, that funding for communities that are and uh, workers who are negatively impacted by the closing of the fossil fuel plants Mm -hmm. um, should have transition funds, have a just transition. So... um, so this, the legislation was in draft form, um, and actually I think it was December 18th or something, we had a this big gathering, which was a larger group than just the Climate Justice Coalition, mm-hmm. um, that met together down at the Trough um, and had a great party. And, um, I was there, it was Yeah, fun. it was right. The, the <laughs> con- comptroller came and talked yeah. about the support for it. And um, so this was um, the kind of the kickoff. There were, th- there were things all over the state that week um, that says, okay, together we, all of these groups together, are going to fight for the New York Renews. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still going on, right? It, yes, still, it's still going on. Okay. Um, it's, during the spring, there was, um, you know, more... Uh, movement building around it, um, mm-hmm. including visits to Albany and stuff. And it did pass the assembly um, mm-hmm. in the last, in the 2016 spring um, uh, assembly. What do they call these things? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm <laughs> new to New York. There, anyway, there's session. <laughs> session, that was the okay. word I was having trouble with. Okay. Um, it didn't pass the Senate. Um, but, um, and so since that time, there's been um, refinement um, and uh, sort of coming back again. And so there will be some more um, coming at the, the incoming session. There'll be lobbying and other things as well to continue working on, on this New York Renew. So that's a statewide coalition okay. of which our Climate Justice okay. Coalition of Western New York is, is a part. Right. Can, so who are some other players um, or participants in the climate justice movement? In, this, in, yeah. in, in Buffalo, yeah, right. In Buffalo. It's, it's gotten to be this wonderfully complex thing, which is great. So we started in the, in the fall, actively in the fall of 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, there was um, um, the, a group called Open Buffalo, which was made up of a lot of 
different social and economic justice groups in the city of Buffalo, which were forming and received some funding, um, actually quite a bit of funding from the Chorus Foundation. Um, and they started to put together a grant um, that would actually bring money in for a, a climate justice campaign on their own. Mm -hmm. um, there are different eight different organizations. They call themselves the Crossroads Collaborative, okay. or Collective, the Crossroads Collective. Um, and this group is, um, you know, they, they don't have environmental organizations, interestingly enough, but they have, um, like, you know, Partnership for the Public Good and um, MAP, Massachusetts Avenue Project, and PUSH, and there are eight different organizations. And so they took on the whole issue from a social justice perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and so their concerns are very much what is in the New York Renews, which is to say, how do we make sure that people who live in challenged environments actually benefit from this? Can we use, can we use climate change as a way to transform culture? Mm -hmm. um, energy democracy, for example. Um, one of the wonderful things about new energy systems that we're dealing with, renewable energy systems, is that they're decentralized. Mm -hmm. We don't need to have one huge company like a nuclear power plant or a coal power plant, um, you know, take all of the proceeds and to control energy. We can mm -hmm. have the energy distributed on everybody's houses and everybody then becomes... Um, you know, a participant in the in the both the production um, and the use of energy. They've mm -hmm. done it in Germany, really, really in Denmark, mm -hmm. really successfully. Um, and so they started to enter into that framework. And then we partner with them now. So we work mostly um, with the faith-based communities, environmental communities, and the unions. And they work as well with the unions, but also with the social and economic justice groups. And so what we've we work, we coordinate very well, um, but when we go down into various communities, we're probably talking to different people. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the goal, is to yeah. expand how many people are care about it or are interested in willing to participate in the climate justice movement. Right, and not just all form one, but be connected and then right. spread out in their own niches. Yeah, we don't need a hierarchical organization. What we need is a network. Yeah, and, for sure. um, And which you know, we know is much more powerful for going to build a movement. And we're going to have to build a movement mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because, um, unfortunately, the powers that are denying are still pretty strong. And so we need a lot of people to step forward and say, yes, we have to do something about, you know, climate change now. Right. So I want you to talk a little bit more about the interfaith group because they've kind of, I don't know, taken off in a you know, in their own direction, but it's pretty amazing. So can you talk about what they're up to and um, yes, where well, they've come from, where they're going, I guess? Great, as, as well as I can. Um, of course, the Pope's encyclical has been a huge bonus. Um, mm -hmm. I have to say, well, Buffalo's mostly Catholic. Mm -hmm. you no, know, that's just the history of our community. Um, and there was an organization called Care for Creation um, mm -hmm. that was operating and trying to work within various parishes um, to talk about creation. Because I think the way that the interfaith um, climate Justice Coalition is working is is from the position of you know this is God's creation and we are we are charged with taking care of it and we've been destroying it mm -hmm. um, and so we need to change and transform the way that we think about 
creation and our relationship to creation. Um, so that's very powerful because almost all religions have a very strong story or very strong perspective on the creation of the world and that it, it is given to us. Yeah. You know, that we need to be thankful for this, this, this particular blessing. And so... Um, we organize uh, there are two groups: the um, the Care for Creation group, and there's also in the city of Buffalo a group called the Network of Religious Communities, which mm -hmm. is a very large um, network of, of many many faiths mm -hmm. um, together, from Hindus to Presbyterians and, you know, and everything in between. And so um, we work with them as well. And so we formed this group. It's, um, there's a planning group that that contains some people from both of these groups, but um, we had you know four or five meetings with very large groups of people, 60, 70, 80 different congregations coming, mm -hmm. um, representing. Um, most recently, we had one, um, it was called Dialogue on Creation. Yeah, I wanted you to talk about that, because okay. that is really interesting. It was really, it was, it was pretty remarkable. We had it in a mosque, mm -hmm. and... Um, it, we all of the I'd say about seventy different faiths were represented at that meeting, and what we did was we asked a group of them, maybe fourteen or fifteen uh, different faith-based groups, to have a representative to stand up and talk about what their faith believes with mm -hmm. respect to creation and human responsibility for yeah. it. And so, um, one by one, it was a witness. It was just. It was just beautiful, you know. Were there common threads? There were. Oh yes, of course. You know, uh -huh. it's like if you're if you're talking about faith based different people have totally different conceptions of God. You know, it's mm -hmm. like so. It's not like there's one agreement. You know how you know there's the religious wars are horrible wars. You know, yeah. you know they're always terrible wars because my God's better than your God. And um, but in this particular setting, it was like we're talking about that some. Something very powerful that people experience mm -hmm. is we are a part of it, and we have experienced this amazing gift of creation that's been given to us. And so, like I said, the stories are a little different depending upon you know where people come from. Mm -hmm. um, but it's all about us being a part of, not separate from. Yeah. And that to me is so significant. Totally, that's, yeah, totally significant. You know, yeah, that's really. Yeah, that's yeah. great. <laughs> that's like my favorite part about it. Um, did you were there common threads on like like human responsibility for creation there or were, how there did were, that there were play and out? and I'll I'll say it, and by being very specific is that at the end we asked people was like what they felt we ought to be doing as a faith based community in Western New York, mm -hmm. uh, and there were a series of things that came themes that came forward. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is that we need to live more simply. Okay. Um, another was that we can, we now, um, you know, own property, we have facilities, um, we invest money, we can do that much more responsibly, we can green our churches, mm. um, we can, um, um, you know, invest money or disinvest money in various locations. This, these are all ideas that they came up with. Um, another one was about policy is... Um, People of faith have the opportunity to witness and go to lobby your mm. elected officials, not from a special interest perspective, but from a moral position that I feel like it's our moral responsibility to be caring for this earth. And right now we're in destroying it and we need to, to behave differently. Mm -hmm. um, we actually had a, someone come from Interfaith Power and Light come and talk about 
how people of faith can feel more comfortable in lobbying and why they might want to do that. Also, the Friends Committee on National Legislation um, was here this last year, and we had a conversation with them um, about how to do lobbying. Um, And so, um, and then how can the whole engagement um, with climate justice actually deepen people's spirituality? Mm-hmm. So these these were the areas that that these people who were there said that they thought their congregations would be interested in going with, um, and we will be having another meeting on the on the twenty third of January oh. coming up where we'll be talking about these different themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they the right themes? And if they are, then how do we now go forward? Um, mm-hmm. with actually institu- instituting these as practices within the faith-based community. Right. Yeah, I like that. Um, the living simply one resonates with me a lot. And there is a big you know, push for minimalism now. That's mm-hmm. like a popular term. But I almost, I like the concept of living simply even better. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, the Quakers have it said, saying this is live simply so that others may simply live. Right, yeah. Very, very important. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that it really does kind of come down to that at least for um you know what everybody can do every day mm-hmm. it's like consume less and be right. more efficient with, and yeah live more simply so right. that's really good right okay so i guess my last question for you about you know kind of your background and how you got to where you are but what are your current projects what do you what are you working on right now that you really care about um personally for from I guess the environmental side and the in the Buffalo community I would have to say that that my heart and soul is in the climate justice movement mm-hmm. um, I have nine grandkids mm-hmm. everybody else has thousands of grandkids <laughs> born and unborn um, and we have we have to change the world I mean that's so so um, and we need to remember where we live and mm-hmm. I live here so to me this is where I spend my time and energy um, on the climate justice movement. And so um, the Sierra Club is continuing um, its efforts um, in this in a larger collaboration right now. You know, mm-hmm. it's sort of like, um, in a way, it doesn't only belong to us, but um, between myself and Roger Cook, we kind of are managing a number of the pieces of it. So that's my role within the Sierra Club right now. Yeah. Um, but also the Western New York Environmental Alliance, which is a coalition of over 100 different organizations that climate justice is one of their major themes, and I'm on their board as well. So you start to see how some of these groups and Rogers with the Working Families Party. So you can start to see mm-hmm. how you know different groups get connected. So to continue, to me personally, continue to working on the interfaith climate justice community is powerful. Yeah. Um, and I think very, very, very important. And I'm very interested in continuing to spend energy working working on that. Um, to work with the New York Renews mm-hmm. seems really, really important. Um, I, I come back to Joanna Macy, who says that we, we need to stop bad things and do good things and shift culture. And I, I kind of, those are in my mind all the time, you know. So stopping bad things is like we're trying to stop the bomb trains that come through and the Northern Access Pipeline. And what's wonderful is, is I feel like we have this group of of amazing, if reluctant, warriors out there now working on all of these projects. It's like just somebody somebody has stepped forward almost every major thing that's happened and say, okay, this belongs to me. Mm-hmm. I will do this. And I'm so proud mm-hmm. of our region that people are willing to do that. So, so support for all of those things and trying to hold those pieces together is one of the things that I do. Um, 
but in addition to that, um, I've started to work with the Crossroads Collective, which now has a new grant um, of called um, a community lab, where they're trying to bring artists, um, writers, and dancers, and you know, painters, and all these people together into the climate justice movement over the next six months. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm working with them as one of their champions as well mm -hmm. um, to have to to try to figure out how do we bring in that whole sector because if we're going to shift consciousness, we're going to need those people to help yeah. us, you know, to help us do that. I was talking to um, an environmental educator the other day, and she said the word uh, STEAM instead of STEM, so like science, technology, engineering, mm -hmm. math. Right. They've added an A to it to be STEAM oh. for art. Oh, how great. <laughs> and so I, I thought that was, I mean, that was in California, so. But that's that, really, that's really yeah, cool. But, but I liked that that was yeah. changing and being recognized because I think that, yeah, storytelling, art, music, it all has to, it's right. like it hooks people and gets them engaged in a way that mm -hmm. facts never will. No, no facts. <laughs> yeah, facts, in quotes. So right, right, it's right. hard. Um, yeah, and yeah, yeah, you can change them. And I don't know, art just resonates in a way that mm -hmm. is, I don't know, right. more impactful. So but they touch they touch um, your heart rather than your head, and 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 yeah, you know people say that. the two, <laughs> right, right. Um, the one the um the one other thing we're working on with the Western New York Environmental Alliance is that we're um trying to start a campaign on uh, uh, youth and climate justice. Oh, okay. um, we had a forum last year, which like forty kids came. It was just great. It was so much fun, and they really got into it. And uh, you know, it's like if you just listen to them, they understand what's going on. The young young people yeah. understand what's going on. They don't know whether the grown-ups are doing enough. Is <laughs> their big their big complaint right now? And you know what can they do? Um, I think about the children's lawsuits. I know, you know which is to me so exciting that yeah. young people are suing the governments for their um, deprivation of their civil rights because they're not addressing climate change. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to work on that in Western New York as well and try to um, to build. Um, a much larger coalition with, um, again, tied very much to the art and music and some of these other things because that's, again, resident, res resonates with, you know, with young people. Yeah, um, I remember the um, last year there was, like, three girls, women mm -hmm. that, I mean, young women, they were mm -hmm. teenagers that did, like, a slam poetry exactly. for climate justice. And it was so harsh but amazing yeah and yeah so yeah. i would love to see more of that and yeah i think so because i think they're very very good messengers i know you know you a bunch of old people like me you know you stand up and say things on i remember when my grandkids says well grandma but your life is practically over <laughs> i said yeah it's really true you know and i said but but somehow or another you know i'm i'm one of those people who benefited from all of this huge fossil fuel revolution it's like people mm -hmm. in my generation so i feel like we have a really really special responsibility to be standing up now and not sort of you know falling back into golf courses and stuff i'm sorry it's like i'm i'm pretty harsh about about that yeah well i thank you <laughs> that's good to hear and i yeah i mean I, we've all benefited from it mm -hmm. so it's um you know it's and in a lot of ways we don't have a choice but uh yeah, it's good to take personal responsibility and then yeah. move forward. So thank you. <laughs> um, okay, so now I'm going to switch to a couple of questions that I'm interested to hear from a lot of people about. But And I'm just going to throw it out there and see what your answer is. So I want you to answer me for where do you experience a world that is dying? 
and that would be in society, particularly Buffalo, um, also in the world and in yourself. Wow. Well, I have to I have to go back for a minute before I come to Buffalo um, to a childhood experience. Um, you know, I talked about my experience of the northwest branch of the Anacostia River and how we played there all the time. Um, but when I was about 12 or 13, because of the rapid suburbanization, there was a lot of flooding that was happening. You know, we know the direct relationship between, you know, development and flooding. Um, and so the Army Corps of Engineers came to fix our creek as a flood control project. Mm-hmm. And destroyed it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no question about it. You know, all of the vegetation, the whole forest was destroyed, and they channelized it and all this kind of stuff. And I, even even now, when I think about it, I have this deep sense of grief of that destruction, that, that you know, that the world, that that world died. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no question about it. We killed it. It's yeah. not just that it died. It's that we killed that world. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, and that included, we had a little hideout called Hernando's Hideaway, because this was during mm-hmm. the Korean War that we had stocked with, you know, goods and stuff, and that, you know, we were, in case there was any kind of a problem, we were going to go there, and we would be able to hide out in the woods and bulldoze completely, and now there's a shopping mm-hmm. mall on top of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that that sense of ecological grief was something that I experienced very early in my life, mm-hmm. um, and always then have been... I don't know, perhaps oversensitive to um, any kind of a destruction like that. So, so for example, in my landscape architecture work, I've always been attracted to devastated landscapes. Mm. Um, you know, it's like protecting beautiful places is wonderful, but that's somebody else's job. You know, <laughs> my job is to, to go there where something has been destroyed or is dying, Mm-hmm. And like the Buffalo River, mm-hmm. and to try to find a way to do healing, to do and 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 when I say healing, um, it includes kind of energy and magic work, but it also includes hard work and and science and facts and all that every every tool that we have, yeah. you know, to bring to those kinds of places, right. um, seems to be so important. And um, and so right now, the destruction of the earth. Mm-hmm. which you see in your everyday life by the consumption and the extraction. And, you know, you just read the paper and talk about how the fields and, you know, in Nepal are being destroyed by lithium mines. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it doesn't make a difference where you are. You And it's like I don't feel these things abstractly. Yeah. I feel them deeply in, in, my, in my soul. Mm-hmm. And so the... In, you know, so just when we start to get the waters cleaned up in Western New York, we find out now that there's hugely polluted with plastics. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because of the increased use of these nano, whatever it is, oh, you the know, micro beads, right? Oh, yeah. And so it's it's like it's just ongoing. It's like when I see the world dying, it's like. It's, I would think if I were the earth, I would say, get rid of those human beings, you know? It's like, mm-hmm. but I don't feel that way. I love human beings. I are one, right? Yeah. Um, but but we don't have to be this way, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think um, my my sense of seeing the world dying is very visceral. Mm-hmm. And um, one that, um, it takes a lot of energy um, to not... Um, sink into despair almost you know mm-hmm. it's like because it's it isn't just one place you can't push against one thing 
because it's the culture. Yeah. It's everything. Mm-hmm. And so when Joanna Macy says we have to shift culture, I take that very seriously, that if we don't do that, we're not going to be able to solve this climate crisis within the framework that created it. We can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, what that means, I don't even know, but yeah. I know that it's not. that's not going to work. So we need lots of really wonderful, creative, everyday people thinking about that and trying to talk about, well, what what would the world be like if it were different, you know? Yeah. I think, I, I just just as an aside, you know, I've teaching at the School of Architecture and Planning for over 30 years, and I remember a project that we did with them where we were trying to, to develop a community around the Broadway market for about... 2050, and we decided there weren't any cars then. That was one of the things that we set up. <sighs> and then we discovered there was all this space called streets, <sighs> you know, that had given away to cars. And if you look at the city and say, "Oh my God, what if the streets belong to us? Yeah. What would what would a, what would a community be like if you were facing public space?" as opposed to face a street that you could get killed on because the car is racing down your street. And it was like this revelation. It's like I could imagine because I grew up in a time where streets were not, you know, yet totally taken over. But um, my students, they had a horrible time imagining what streets could be because they had never had any experience of that. But once they got into it, it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, that's where the gardens could be and the, the community composting could be there and places for people to play basketball and... Um, you know, and each street could be different because every, all the communities who lived on it would be different. You know, how much fun it would be to walk around streets. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so anyway, I, I think about that when I start thinking about despair is that, and thinking about a dying world is that we need new imaginations of ways that the earth could be healed, mm-hmm. where Buffalo could be healed, our urban environments could be healed. Um, yeah. Anyway. So the flip side of that is where are you experiencing a world that's waiting to be born? Like, do you feel mm-hmm. anything that's emerging that for the future that, I mean, it can be positive or negative. <laughs> I know there's <laughs> a lot going on right now, but. Well, in my better moments, um, I think of the, you know, the national election and, and the, the sort of, um, I don't know the con artist. You know, you know, it's like it's it's just to me this this overwhelming thing <laughs> that Donald Trump is the president, going to be the president of the United States, mm-hmm. and how people believed that um, he actually was on their side. To, I mean, and then appointed all these elitist billionaires and to to to, to be in charge of everything. And anyway, it's like so. I think about it as in in my better moments as a last gasp. Mm-hmm. That this is this is the dying throes of a way of living and a way of being on this earth um, that is destructive. That's in my better moments. You know? mm-hmm. Otherwise, I'm terrified. But anyway, uh-huh. in my better moments, <laughs> I, I think about those things. So I, I think about also how that has so inspired people. Um, thousands of people have stood up for racial justice now, for immigrants, for the environment, for climate change. So many people have said, oh, my God. You know, as Jerry Garcia said, you know, somebody's got to do something, and isn't it incredibly pathetic that it has to be us, you know? <laughs> but I think people are starting to say, yeah, it has to be us, and that means it has to be me. And so, you know, our own Sierra Club, all these people have joined, you know, recently, mm-hmm. which is starting to say, well, wait a minute, that means that people now recognize 
that somebody else isn't going to do it for them, that they're yeah. going to have to do it themselves. I think that's very, very hopeful and very, very healing. I see people less afraid to speak from their hearts. You know, it's like we have a culture that's, that's sort of situated in minds, in brains, you know, and so people being willing to talk about, say, ecological grief or being able to be willing to be vulnerable to other people in ways that they hadn't before. I see, I see that. I think about our, our solstice rituals where, mm-hmm. you know, we're willing to just, you know, sort of stand bare in front of communities of people and say, I need to do this. This is, this is my commitment to you yeah. um, and to each other and to the children. I see that as being something that's about, about healing as well. Um, I think we have a long way to go, and um, I think it's I think it's a scary time to me. Um, but I also think that we can do it if if we decide to. That we can transform. We can use the climate change to transform the systems in which we live. Uh, yeah. Because yeah. what do people really need? People really need food and shelter, to be loved, mm-hmm. to be part of a community to be appreciated for their gifts, to have good work to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we could create a culture that yeah, did that. We could do it. it. Yeah, those are simple things, but they t- require time and, yeah, a culture shift. So. Yeah, a culture shift. Right. right. <laughs> exactly. Well, that was wonderful. Thank you. Um, I guess, is there anything else that you would like to like parting words anything like that we can uh well I think we've been talking about Buffalo and Niagara region a lot it's like I think it would be wonderful if people would start conversations amongst themselves about what the future could be because it's really hard it's actually hard to imagine the future that isn't a trajectory of where we are right now right and so I'm going to throw one thing out that would be really fun for people to talk about would be what if the Niagara region, and that would be thinking about, say, the Niagara River in the middle of it, so you know we get rid of the political boundaries, so we have southern Ontario and, and our western New York region. What if we decided to have a conversation about what do we really need, and can we provide it for ourselves in our region? Can we actually generate enough healthy food for the people who live in this region? Um, could we have enough energy that we needed? Could we have enough shelter uh, that where people were protected? Could we have enough work that we would keep people um, busy and occupied in wonderful things, whether it's teaching violin or, or pollinating plants? I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, do we have enough natural wild systems you know, to, keep, to keep the world going and to keep the fabric of the, of the world in place in our own region? Could we imagine what life would be like if suddenly we were isolated from the whole rest of the world and we had to do this? I think about Cuba, the Cuban experiment, mm-hmm. you know, and we had to figure out how we were going to create our own civilization. Because I think if we could do that, we could imagine what life would be like in a post-petroleum time. Mm-hmm. Because... Um, it's like if we if right now we're we're sort of fixated on everything that's outside of us. We think of economic development as being somebody from the outside coming in rather than what we generate on the inside for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And if we could generate a life for ourselves on the inside, then anything surplus we might decide, you know, 
to shift and exchange in the rest of the world. But we would be first taking care of ourselves. And they could be replicated in every community that they could take care of themselves. So that's, as a yeah. thought experiment. Yeah, that's awesome. I will be I'll be thinking about it too. Yeah, I've got my little garden out there and yeah, I think yeah, keeping things close and yeah, thinking about what we can do here is is really great and I don't know important for these times. So that's right. yeah. Well thank you for talking with me. Um thank you for the great, great questions. I really oh, yeah. they weren't so easy, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Keeping Things Alive podcast. My name is Laura Evans, and if you would like more information about me, this podcast, or other work that I care about, please visit www.keepingthingsalive.org.